bless the name of the Lord. Well, you got to turn around and give someone a God bless and welcome them to the house of the Lord. We praise his name forever. Welcome, welcome. Merry Christmas to every one of you. The blessing of God. What a glorious moment it is to be able to worship the Lord and give him praise for who he is. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Praise the name of the Lord. God is so good. We worship Him. I'm glad you're here this morning, brothers and sisters, as we have gathered to celebrate Jesus. And my text is found in the book of Micah, one of the most powerful texts, written hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says it all. As we begin this morning, I believe I have something that is very encouraging and inspirational and prophetic as we have come together to worship the Lord. The Bible tells us, but thou notice the specificness, how exact. This is hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. The prophet Micah tells us exactly where the Messiah will be born. And this is important, and you'll see why in a few moments. But thou Bethlehem, Beth, the house of bread, Bethlehem, Ifrita, which speaks of fruitfulness, we'll touch that in a little bit. Though thou be little among thousands of Judah, it was a very small community, at the time, Bethlehem, very, very small. I'm not sure exactly how many people lived in Bethlehem, but it was about a hundred people. Just imagine that for a moment. Thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old. Micah tells us exactly where the Messiah will be born. I've entitled this message, Christmas Bread. Christmas Bread. Now every Christmas season we turn to Bethlehem, where the infant child of God took form of a servant born of a virgin who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, not a king. Yes, a child was born. My God, a child. My friends, this is what Christmas is all about. This is the greatest event in history. It was not man rising and setting foot on the moon. No, it was God coming down and set his foot on the earth. Yes, on the earth, and became flesh and dwelt among us, who died on a cross and rose on the third day. He didn't come in chariots of fire. He didn't come chariots of gold. 
No, 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 not at all. He came as a baby born in a manger cave in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, the greatest event in all of history, the greatest gift that God has ever given humanity at any time. And it was all arranged and prepared by God specifically. The exactness, the preciseness of his birth, all the events coming together, all the prophetic events, all the historic events, all these events culminating and reaching an apex through the birth of Jesus Christ. And it all began right here in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Now what's interesting, brothers and sisters, and I've shared this before, what's interesting about Bethlehem is when Michael prophesied the birth of Jesus, he mentions Bethlehem, but did you know that at that time there were two Bethlehems? There was a Bethlehem in the north in Zebulun and a Bethlehem in the south. So we already see right from the beginning how exact it is that Micah prophesies and tells us exactly where Jesus is going to be born in the southern part, not the northern part, not in Bethlehem of the north, but Bethlehem in the south. Again, God had designed, he had purpose. Now, now friends, the city of Bethlehem was prepared by the Lord in three different ways. We're going to tackle three areas this morning. We're going to look at the historical significance of Bethlehem. Why was Bethlehem so significant? We're going to look at the symbolic element of Bethlehem. There was some symbolism there that became reality. But then we're going to focus as we come to a conclusion on the prophetic element of Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus. Do you know there were over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament? And, and, and some scholar, he, he did some research and he did a study. He said, for three prophecies to be fulfilled by an individual without that individual being born yet, just three of those prophecies to be fulfilled. It would be akin or be like painting a quarter red. Now watch this now. One quarter red going to the state of Texas and spilling out billions of quarters over the state of Texas up to your knees and then being able to find that one quarter that was painted red. That would be the remoteness and the impossibility of someone being able just to fulfill three of those prophecies. Can you imagine all 300 of them? With God, there's no such thing as coincidence or accidents. Everything was prepared. So let's look at the first element. God prepared Bethlehem historically. I'll give you some subpoints. It was a city of sorrow. A lot of pain came through Bethlehem. If you remember in Genesis, we are told that Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was pregnant with child and, and Jacob wanted a child so badly. And we discover that Rachel died. She died by giving birth and it devastated Jacob tremendously. And Rachel was eventually buried in a cave 
And where was this cave? In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem was this cave. But the sorrow of the city went far beyond the tears of Jacob as he buried his wife who he loved. We fast forward and we talk about a man by the name of Herod the Edomite. He wasn't even a full Jew, king of the Jews. Half Jew, half Gentile. And he was appointed by Rome to rule all of Judea. And one day, Herod heard that the true king was born. One day, Herod, that a child was born, he heard this, and that, that this child is the Messiah, the Savior of the Jews, the King of the Jews. And that frustrated and infuriated Herod, and he became very intimidated. You know, when you're insecure, you become intimidated very easily. And he was intimidated and furious about this, and he wanted to get rid of this, this threat this threat of a king. I am the king, he says. And he proclaimed that every child under two would be killed and murdered. And reminds us, all of us, of the same thing that happened to Moses. If you remember, the Pharaoh also wanted every child under two to be killed so that Moses would not live. Because he too heard something about Moses. Herod hears something about Jesus, the true king. And so every male under two years old would be killed. And this was prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Everything in the Bible was prophesied. Why is the Bible the word of God? It's the word of God because no holy book, if I can use that term, deals with prophecy like the Bible does. No book is like the Bible. Why? Because the Bible is not any ordinary book. And we see this prophecy of these babies being murdered back in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15 when it says, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weepings. Rachel, Rachel which is Israel, weeping for her children. And amazingly, Matthew records this event in Matthew chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. In other words, brothers and sisters, the Bible speaks of a horrible event that would take place where every child under two would be massacred during the time of the birth of the Messiah. Yes, yes, indeed, on that day many were rejoicing, but Rachel, a picture of Israel, was weeping for the children who, had, who were murdered. Yes, but, 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 but God, in His mercy, gives a dream to Joseph. And in this dream, Joseph is told to take the Messiah, to take the Son of the living God, to take Jesus, and, and leave. Bethlehem. Get out of Israel. He has a dream in Matthew chapter 2. And not only does he have a dream to leave at the right time, at that specific time that Herod pronounced death over these two-year-old children, male children. But he gives Joseph the place he must go also prophesied in the book of Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 that Jesus would end up going into Egypt now my parents are, are from Egypt and they would tell me now this is just we're not sure exactly we don't know for sure 
but the Greek Orthodox Church in Egypt uh, have declared that they knew where Jesus was and they built a church there. That's, the, that, that's, just, that's just extra. But the, the truth is that the Bible spoke of Jesus going to Egypt to escape Herod. And then eventually what takes place is when Herod died, Joseph gets another dream at the right time, at that exact moment, to go back to Bethlehem, to go back to Israel. And that's exactly what happened. It is absolutely amazing, brothers and sisters, how accurate the Bible is, how specific the Bible is. Can you imagine, however, the weeping and the wailing of all the children that were lost? And in a sense, these little children that were murdered were the first martyrs of Christianity. And where did this all take place? Yes, in the city of sorrows, through the tears of Jacob, and now the tears of the women, the mothers of Israel, who lost their Babies, can you imagine having your child murdered at that age? The sorrow unbearable, almost unconscionable. And so we see that Bethlehem was a city of sorrow. I'll continue. It was also a city that God selected. City of sorrow. A city divinely selected Bethlehem and we're told in 1 Samuel exactly how and why this city would be selected we are told of a great king his name was David oh he wasn't recognized as a king when King Song fell backslid miserably God told Samuel I want you to go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse also prophesied 11 chapter of verse 1 of Isaiah I want you to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and there you will anoint my true king, the king that I have appointed. If you remember, King Saul was chosen by man. Even his name Saul in the Hebrew, Hebrew means chosen by man. God never chose Saul. And Saul disobeyed God over and over again. And now God tells Samuel the prophet, go to Bethlehem. What is it about Bethlehem? And there you will find the true king. And so Samuel, in obedience, goes to the house of Jedi. Jesse prophesied in Isaiah. And as he, as he walks in, there is Jesse. There is Jesse, proud, because he knows of this. And he's got seven children that in front of him, he's got one feeding the sheep. He didn't even consider him his child. He says, oh, you want to anoint the next king? Please, Samuel, look at my sons. Look at this one, how tall and strong. Look at this one, how magnificent it is. And of course, we know the story. Samuel was not interested in these men, these sons. They looked great. They looked like they can play the part. Oh, they looked, they looked powerful. They were strong. They were, they were something that certainly would appear that they could be the next king. But aren't you glad that God doesn't look at man the way we do? Aren't you glad that God's ways are not man's ways and not God's ways? And, 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 and so, of course, was Samson, another, do you have another? Why would you ask if you have another son when you got seven in front of you? Do you have another son? And of course, Jesse says, yeah, but you can't, you, you can't, you can't I mean David, he, David, he, he's a shepherd. Being a shepherd in the times of 
David was the lowest of the lows. You couldn't find a job less significant than being a shepherd during that time. And Samuel says, let me take a look at this man. And he brings him. And he looks at him. And the Spirit of God speaks to him. Samuel, this is my king. Oh, brothers, I've got a word for somebody. The world might look at you as a shepherd boy, but God sees you as a king. God sees you. You are his child. You've got royal blood flowing through you. You are joint heirs. God, the world might look at you as meaningless. Good for nothing. And David was anointed, and where did all this take place? In Bethlehem, the city of David, prophesied in the scriptures. Micah chapter 2, even Isaiah speaks of this. Oh, my friends, nothing is by coincidence. Nothing. There's no accidents with God. God has everything specifically arranged. Even when God told Noah to build an ark, even when God gave all those exact details how Noah was to build the ark, he left out one of the most important details that you can possibly have when you're building a ship he told Noah I don't want you to build a rudder I don't want you to build any kind of rudder that steers the ark he didn't tell him because you see God is the rudder God will direct God will guide every detail is arranged by God the steps of a righteous man are ordered all the steps the good the bad and the ugly God is in control it wasn't by accident that he chose Bethlehem Bethlehem represents a city of sorrow Bethlehem selected by God but then Bethlehem also was prepared by God not only for sorrow and selection but also for salvation and Ruth tells us this. The book of Ruth is so clear, so clear. We all know the story of Ruth, don't we? We know that her mother-in-law, Naomi, Naomi was married. She had children. And there was a famine in the land. A famine just so happened to come to where? To Bethlehem. A famine took place in Bethlehem. There was no food. There was no money. And so they decided to go where? To Moab. Moab of all places. You don't go to Moab. But there was no money. There was no food. And so they ended up going to Moab. And there they suffered great loss. Naomi lost her husband. Her children eventually got married. And one of the children, her sons, got married to Ruth. But her sons died as well. And now, amazingly enough, directed by God, nothing just happens. A famine now takes place in Moab, and there's no food now in Moab. But they heard, guess what? Oh, how incredible. Now there's food in Bethlehem. So now they're off to Bethlehem. But of course, there were some concerns. Ruth is a Moabitess. After all these years, will she be accepted? They weren't supposed to marry a Moabitess. You can't do that. And she's now her daughter-in-law. And there she is, Naomi in Moab they ended up going back to Bethlehem there was a lot of concerns but they ended up going back 
any way. They had nothing. They had no money. There were no children. Her husband had died. And, and to live without a husband during those days, it meant there was no, you couldn't survive. And so now Ruth, who lost her husband, is in, is in Bethlehem. She's a Moabitess. She's got that against her. Her husband's dead. She's got that against her. Everything seems to be going terribly wrong ah my friends but what seems to go wrong through the eyes of man could be the very opposite as I mentioned last week things that might seem like they're falling apart might actually might be might just might be falling into place you see and things were falling into place but she didn't know it how many times do things seem to be falling apart but they're actually falling into place but you don't see it at the time you don't perceive it at the time Ends up going back to Bethlehem, lost. Don't know what to do, don't even know where to go. And one day, just one day, and it just so happened, just so happened, just so happened that she's picking up some extra grain and seeds and a little bit of this and a little bit of that that's left over in the fields and she just so happened to be picking up some extra extra grains of whatever barley or whatever she can find and she just so happened to be on the field of Boaz Boaz why Boaz there were so many other why would you be doing this in Boaz's field and we all know the story Boaz one day was passing by he takes a look at her and when he looks at her something began to stir up within him he didn't realize that this was God's direction and he said who is this Ruth Ruth a Moabitess and God began to speak to him and eventually as the story tells us he ends up marrying Ruth the Bible calls him my kinsman redeemer he redeemed her brought salvation to her on every level and where did all of this take place in Bethlehem Beth what is it about Bethlehem a place of sorrow was Jacob wept a place divinely selected by God when Samuel was told to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and there you will find the king and now we find it as a place of salvation for Boaz Ruth's kinsman redeemer prophetically is our what Jesus is our kinsman redeemer for he saved us while we were empty dry and in poverty it is he who has redeemed me from the curse of the law he is my Boaz all in Bethlehem and you know when you look at the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 oh I'm, I'm getting excited has anybody ever wept reading the genealogies I don't think there's anybody in this room that's ever wept reading the genealogies well you know what I have wept I have wept reading the genealogies and I'm gonna tell you why I have wept just hold on for a second let me give you one before we begin it's in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 we see all the scriptures coming together in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 we see how the Messiah was born through these genealogies that we're talking about through the line of what now notice 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 here the book of generation of Jesus Christ the son of David verse 1 Abraham begat Isaac 
Isaac begat Jacob, Judas's brethren. Judas begat Perez and Tamar, and Perez Isram. Watch this now, verse 5. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rachel, and Boaz begat Obed, and Ruth and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and king begat Solomon heir that had been the wife of Urez. And then we discover later that David, after all those that the birth of Jesus came through the lineage of David right up to Joseph and Mary from the tribe of Judah. There's something about the genealogies. But friends, can I go a little deeper with you? You got to hold on to your hats this morning. You really do, because I'm going to share something so far. Do you know the gospel message? The entire gospel message is written in Genesis chapter 5. In the genealogies of Genesis chapter 5, I will present to you today, my brothers and sisters, the message of salvation. I will present to you in Genesis chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, not your phones, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 5, and I'm going to present to you the gospel message through the genealogies. Are you with me so far? Watch this. Because if you're not excited, you will be after this. Watch this now. This is the book of the generations of Adam. I told you. It is possible to weep as you read the genealogies. Adam, in the day God created man, in the likeness of God made he man. Verse 3. Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after the image called his name Seth. Did you see that? Verse 6. Seth lived 105 years, begat Enos. Verse 9, and Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And Enos lived, he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were 905 years and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahaliel. Mahaliel, that's verse 12. Let's go to verse uh, 15, and Malihel lived, watch, at five years, and begat Jared, verse 18, and Jared lived 116 two years, and begat Enoch, and Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years, and begat sons and daughters, 21, and Enoch lived 60 and five years, and begat Methuselah, verse 22, and Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah. 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 316, five years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Verse 26, and Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech. 782 years and begat sons and daughters. Verse 28, and Lamech, Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son and called his name Noah. Noah lived 500 years. Okay, Pastor, that's wonderful. You just gave me the genealogies. You just, all of that. I'm glad. But what does that mean? What, what, what are you trying to say? by well, well, brothers and sisters, when you look at the Hebrew meanings, the Hebrew meanings of the name, watch this, this is so powerful. The Hebrew meanings of each name of these men that I just mentioned, it's going to absolutely astound you. 
Watch this now. Adam, verse 1, in the Hebrew means man. Watch this. Seth, verse number 3, in the Hebrew means appointed. Enosh, verse 9, in the Hebrew means mortal. Verse 9, Canaan means sorrow. Mahaliel, verse 12, means the blessed God. Jared, verse 15, means shall come down. Enoch, verse 18, means teaching. Methuselah, verse 21, means his death shall bring. Lamech, verse 25, means despairing or suffering. Noah, verse 29, means comfort, peace, or rest. Now watch this. Watch this now. Let's, let's bring all these names together and let's see what they mean. Let's bring all these names together and let's see, is there a message here? Is there a message through the names and through the genealogies that we see in Genesis 5? Well, I'm glad you asked. Watch this. Man appointed, watch this, appointed unto mortal sorrow means man is separated from God with no way to get back to him. This is fulfilled. The three names are fulfilled. Adam, Seth, and Enoch, all these three names are fulfilled. Man, mortal man, sorrow, means man has been separated from God with no way to get back to him. Watch this. The blessed God shall come down teaching. That is fulfilled through Michael, Jared, and Enosh. Are you with me? Jesus coming to his creation, bringing the word of God, showing the way of salvation. Then we have Methuselah, Lamech. What does it mean? It means despairing. His death shall be despairing, bring suffering. We see that fulfilled in Isaiah 53 through Christ. The death and the resurrection of Jesus removes our sin through his death. We are now reconciled back to him. And the next three names... Bring us to the last name, Noah. What does Noah mean? It means peace. It means rest. What am I saying? We can by one become one with God and have his comfort and his peace. We can have his Noah. Jesus says, peace I give unto you. We have the gospel message here in Genesis chapter 5. We see everything culminating through the life of Jesus Christ, through the genealogies how incredible is that? And we see this also fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. And so my friends, this little town of Bethlehem was not only prepared historically, but I'll give you my next point. It is also prepared symbolically. There's something symbolic that brings forth a reality, but notice this symbolic element to this. Watch this now. Bethlehem means the house of bread. And so it is in the house of bread where the bread of life was born. No accident. This bread, this manna represents Jesus who said, I am, the Greek word, eroime. We have several eroimes in the scripture. I am the bread, I am the light, I am the vine. I am, I am. It is the same I am written in Exodus when, when Moses was confused and didn't know what to do. When God told him to go and set my people free, Moses was confused. But, but who, who, they, they won't believe me. Who are you? What do I say? You tell them I am. It's the same. It's the same meaning, the same term. You tell them, Moses, I am that I am. Is sending you. That's all. Pharaoh needs to know. Jesus says the same thing. Ego ime, 
I am the bread, so significant. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. It is the picture that we see in the Ark of the Covenant. When God told Joshua to take the Ark about 3,000 feet, and you have the Ark as you march into the Promised Land, and you make sure that you see the Ark. Wherever you go, make sure the Ark is before you. Wherever you go, you make, make sure that the Ark is the focal point. And so we need to ask a question, what was in the Ark that was so powerful? powerful what was in the ark that made it so special well there was three things that made it so special first of all the ten commandments the logos the word the ten commandments the word of God was in the ark number two we see that Aaron's rod that had no roots that budded without any roots which is a picture of the spirit was in the ark so we have the Ten Commandments represents the Word of God. We have Aaron's rod that budded, produced fruit with no roots, speaks of the sensational, the miraculous, the Spirit. We have the Word, we have the Spirit. And then what was in the ark? We have the manna that God sent to feed His people while they were in the wilderness. This is what Jesus said, I am the bread, I am the manna. We see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit all represented in the ark. I am the bread. But notice, not only was Jesus who is the bread born in the house of bread, we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. We see another name. Can we get Matthew chapter, excuse me, Micah chapter 5. Can we get that back on the screen? What does it say about Micah? It says, but thou Ephrata, Ephrata. What does that mean? There's another name we see here. Ephrata in the Hebrew means to be fruitful, to be fruitful. What does Jesus call himself? Not only the bread in the house of bread. Oh, can I go deeper with you? But also, it speaks of the fruit. What did he call himself? I am the vine. I am the vine and you are the branches. You can do nothing without me. Unless my holy sap flows from the vine into the branches, you can do nothing. We see... Two elements of the prophecy right here in Micah 5. The bread and the fruit. The vine. The bread and the vine. The source, the vine, the vine. This is how you are able to bear fruit. You see, we who can do nothing before can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, that's what, that's what, that's what Paul mentions in Acts, the 17th chapter. In him we what? We live. The Greek word zoe, which means the zoo. In him we live. You ever gone to a zoo? Myriads of animals. Myriads of life. That's what Zoe means. When you call your daughter Zoe, it means a zoo. But it means a zoo of life. A, a, a smorgasbord of life. Life I give you. In him we live and move. And have our being. In other words, friends, without me, without Jesus speaking, you can't even breathe. You can't even function. You can't even get out of bed. In Him we live, we move, and we have our being. You see, my friends, He is my ability, and you've heard me say this, in my inability. He is my sufficiency in my insufficiency. He is my adequacy in my 
inadequacy. And when the Bible says you can do nothing without me, friends, you can be sure that that is what's saying exactly that you actually, I know you don't believe it, and some of you who are heady, and some of you who are self-contained, and some of you who like to talk about all your great exploits and how powerful you are, and some of you who've got all kinds of degrees really struggle with this. But I declare to you that I don't care how smart you are, or how powerful you are, or how enabled you are, you can do nothing without Christ. I need him. Oh boy, do I need him. I need him. I need him desperately. Doesn't matter how smart I am. Doesn't matter how capable I am. I, someone said, watch this now. Someone said, if, if our greatest need for humanity was education, then God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need was technology, then God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need was money and wealth, then God would have sent us an economist or economist. But since our greatest need is the forgiveness of sin, then God sent a Savior born in Bethlehem from Ephratite. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The one who calls himself the vine. The one who calls himself the bread of life. My friends, and that's why the angel declared in Luke 2, Behold, behold, I bring you good tidings, a message of joy, that in the city of David, a Savior, a Savior, not an educator, not a prophet even. And you have the audacity, sir, to think that Jesus was a mere prophet? It's far beyond a mere prophet, far beyond a good teacher, far beyond the city of David in Bethlehem. Oh, my friends, how powerful is the word of God. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to share more next week, my firewall message, but you make sure that this is your focal point, not just now, but for the rest of your lives. There's something about the word of God. I was watching a documentary a few years ago, and I wrote this down. I didn't want to forget it. It was a section dealing with Sikhism. Sikhism, Sikhs, who focus on certain gurus. Guru is a teacher. A guru means enlightenment or the enlightened one. And it's interesting because in their history, they've had 10 gurus, all were men. Now watch this. Look how interesting. This is. But the last one is the most important. It's not a man, but it is a book. Interesting. And they believe the book is divine and it's located in what they call their golden temple. And so what they would do is they would gather together and they would wash and cleanse themselves and, and they would parade lifting up this, this book at a specific time, walking before the people, exalting this book, shouting ecstatically, worshipping this book. Oh, I got to pause right here. You see, you see. They are right about the book. Yeah, yeah, they're right about, the, yeah, yeah, it's eternal, but they're wrong about which book. <laughs> 
They're wrong about which book? They're right about a book, but they're wrong about which book? Because there's only one book. It's only one book that's inspired by God. There's only one book that declares that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Yeah, yeah, all the its, the ands, and the buts. Yeah, yeah, from Genesis, yes, even Nahim, Nahim Obadiah, even the book of Jodah, yes, yes, even the book of Philemon, all have significance. All are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Be careful today, friends. We're trying to change the Word of God. We're trying to philosophize it. We're trying to candy coat it. We're trying to dissect it. We're trying to do things and preach things that are only convenient to us. People will tell you it's not relevant anymore. Yeah, yeah. They don't care about it anymore. They push it aside. They kick the Bible out of school. They kick the Bible out of our lives. But I'd rather stand with God and His Word and be judged by the world than stand with the world and be judged by God. On Christ the solid rock, I stand. Everything else is sinking sand. Oh. And so, God not only prepared the city of Bethlehem historically, not only did he prepare it symbolically representing Jesus. Ah, but this one is powerful. Oh, so powerful. But also prophetically. The scriptures... Anybody can predict things and say things. But to predict the exactness, specific, the details of where, how much, how long, hundreds and hundreds of years before it actually took place, can only be divine. And for some of you that are searching divine freedom and knowledge of what you're going to do and you're calling up the psychic hotline and you're picking up the phone and you're calling these people to find out your future or you might go to the newspaper if they still exist today and go to the horoscope section to find what's in your horoscope do you not realize each horoscope is a picture of a demon did you not know? why would you do that When everything's been written right here. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies about Jesus and events. I wish, if I had time to go through some of these prophecies, brothers and sisters, we would be here till next week. I'm not kidding you. I, I'm not exaggerating. The Bible is one third is prophecy. And for information, prophecy is not just given to us for information. A lot of people get excited about Bible prophecy, but it's not for information. It's for transformation. In Genesis 3, we discover the ministry of the Messiah, that Jesus would do something against the devil. In Genesis 49, we discover where the Messiah would be born. 
where he would come through a tribe of Judah. We see that. In, in Exodus 12, we discover that the lamb that would be crucified upon the cross, that even the bones would not be broken. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. His bones were not broken. Oh, we're not even starting yet. In Matthew, in, in, in Psalm 22, we even see that the Messiah would be on a cross and he would cry out, why hast thou forsaken me? In Psalm 69, we discover two things, that his side would be pierced and that water and blood would flow, but also a friend would betray him, a friend by the name of Judah. In Isaiah 7, 11, and 9, we discover not only that he would be born, but he would be born from a virgin. That's impossible. We discover in Psalm 7, in Psalm 9, sorry, in Isaiah 7, and in Isaiah chapter 9, we discover what kind of ministry the Messiah will have, that he will also be known as a mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the mighty counselor, that everything you need is embalmed in Jesus, and that the government will be upon his shoulder. The government will not take place right now, but the government will be upon us. That's a prophetic event that will take place during the millennium and will take place when we end up in the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. We see everything and know everything about Jesus through the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit, even how he would die. He would die between, between two, two thieves. We see this in Isaiah 53. We, we, we see so much taking place that he was, his face was so marred and scarred you couldn't even recognize that's happened. That he would be crucified between two thieves. That happened. Even would be buried among the rich. That happened with Joseph of, of Arimathea. Unbelievable to think how specific the scriptures are. Even that he would be coming upon a donkey. And that his name would be declared Hosanna, Hosanna. Even that he'd be betrayed in the same book of, uh, of Zechariah over 30 pieces of silver prophesied in the Bible. My God. For he was made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because of who no victory came. But this was found, no deceit was seen or heard in his mouth. How amazing. And if you go back, my friends, to the Christmas story, I see two scriptures that are so powerful. And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible tells us that when the fullness of time had come, when? It was a few, when? God knows exactly the time and the place of the birth of the Messiah. He knew from the beginning of time where the Messiah would be born. But what's amazingly, it's just as powerful, not only did he know the place, but he also knew the exact time. Timing is so important with God. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 22 tells us that when the time is right, when the time is right, God's time, not my time, not my season, I always think the time is now, or my time, but it's not my time, it's when God says it's the right time. When the time has come, when the right time has come, I will cause it to happen. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 22, timing is so important. Now Galatians 4 tells us, Galatians 4 tells us that when the fullness of time 
has come. What does that mean? The Bible tells us that during the time of Mary and Joseph, when Mary was about to give birth, the Bible tells us there was a census in the land. Why would there be a census at that time? Mary and Joseph were forced to go to Bethlehem. It wasn't their original intent. They're forced to go to their home for this census to be taken. So now Mary and Joseph are going to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Beth, the time was being arranged, the time was set. But why was this so significant? There's so many reasons. First of all, first of all, how, what, what, where would Jesus be born? And how would the message of the gospel be preached? In what language? What language? How would everybody understand the gospel message? How would the gospel message go from place to place? How would the gospel message be spread throughout all the world? Just in Galilee? You're telling me the message would only be in the area of Galilee, maybe in, in Israel and that. How can people travel? How can the word, how would people even understand? Not everybody speaks Hebrew. Well, I'm glad you asked me, brothers and sisters, when the fullness of time had come. And why and how? Well, God arranged it at the exact time. For my friends, during the time of Jesus' birth, not only was there a need, not only was the, a census being made, but watch this, during that time, the Pax Romana, which was that, what was that? The Romans declared that now we're going to develop roads, all kinds of roads, and they went on this, this, uh, this escapade, if you will, this endeavor set by the Roman government that we're going to build all kinds of roads. Have you ever heard, all roads lead to Rome? You know, that started back then. They built roads everywhere to facilitate travel. The, the Romans were notoriously known for that. And so they built all kinds of roads and highways and streets to facilitate people going from city to city, from nation to nation. Oh, stay with me. But what about the language? The language, well, you, it was during the Greek reign under Alexander the Great when he conquered the world at the age of 22. And now he wanted to, to make a worldwide language, Hellenistic Greek. And after that, the world, the number one language of the world during that time and into the time of the Romans was Greek. Was Greek. Now why is that so significant? There's purpose. Can you give, take me to Daniel chapter 2, please? Daniel chapter 2. We see Daniel. Now watch what Stay with me, friends. I'm going deeper here, but stay with me, please. This is so powerful. Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, has a dream. Nobody can interpret the dream. He asks his men, his astrologers, his soothsayers, to interpret the dream. Nobody can interpret the dream. Somebody says, well, wait a minute. I know a young man. His name is Daniel. He's able to interpret the dreams, for God is with him. They send Daniel, Daniel to interpret this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He sees a statue. He's a statue of gold. He sees arms of silver. He sees an abdomen made out of bronze. And he sees two legs made with iron and, and clay. And he sees ten toes. Also made out of clay and iron bits. Nobody can interpret it. Daniel says, I'm going to tell you the interpretation, King Nebuchadnezzar. You are the head of gold. And you're going to be reigning here for a period of time, but your kingdom won't last, Nebuchadnezzar. 
There's going to be another kingdom coming after you. That, but, but you see, look how specific the Bible is. I just can't. It speaks of two nations in one. The Medes and the Persians were two nations of one, represented by silver. And when you know during the time of, of Persia, silver was a great commodity. The time of Babylonians, gold was a great commodity. And, and the Persians will defeat you, Nebuchadnezzar. But the Persians, who are vast and strong, will be defeated by a much smaller nation. These are the Greeks, and they are represented by the abdomen. And they would be powerful, powerful, but they also will be defeated but they will be defeated by the Romans and they are represented by the iron fist of Rome, by the iron and the clay and there will be ten toes that stem out of this Roman Empire. But you see verse 45 of chapter 2, there's going to be another kingdom that's not made by the hands of men and that kingdom will destroy all the other kingdoms and that kingdom will be eternal. That will be fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 9 where the Bible says that the government will be upon his shoulders. It's speaking of Jesus' reign and we see this fulfilled in chapter 2 of verse 45 and then of course ultimately taking place during the millennial period what's my point what's my point very clear God knew exactly which nation would rule and reign God knows exactly who and what he knows exactly the time and he knew that when Alexander the Great would reign that he would um, uh, bring the Greek language throughout the world that the world was it's like the English of today most people of the world speak English Mo not, of course not everybody but that's the international language it's English during the time of Jesus it was Greek so why is that important pastor I'll tell you why because for the gospel to be preached throughout the world where people could understand it, there needs to be one language and the Greek language was that language and they're able to preach it throughout the whole world. The roads were set by the Pax Romana, the Italians that built all these roads to facilitate travel so they can take the gospel and preach it throughout the rest of the world. There was a census that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Everything when the fullness of time had come Fullness of time. All these events. Jeremiah 31, the weeping of Rachel, the little children being murdered, all the events. All these events culminated right here in this little town called Beth. And you tell me that there's no God. Jesus wasn't born in Rome. I mean, if the king of kings would be born, certainly he'll be born in Rome, wouldn't he? Maybe in Athens. Maybe in Damascus. Certainly. And there has to be trumpets, and there had to be royalty, and there has to be red carpets, but there was no trumpets, no royalty, no, no carpets, no celebration. There was no great entourage of nobility, and yet it was here in Bethlehem, this small remote town, the angels made the greatest declaration of all time here in the city of David. Here in the city of David, a Savior is born. And who were the first to hear the message? Were they the kings? Were they the noblemen, the, the aristocrats, the shepherds? 
The shepherds, the ignorant, the lowest of society, the shepherds were the first ones who had the privilege to hear the greatest message that was ever mentioned and preached in all of human history. Nothing greater in Bethlehem, the city of David, a savior. Be born. Shepherds. Shepherds. Jesus is the great shepherd. The lowest in Hebrew society were Shepherds weren't even allowed to go into the temple. Did you know that? Why such meagerness? Why such lowliness? First of all, God hates pride. Oh, he despised pride. It's an ugly thing. Ugly, ugly. Arrogance, ugly. Self-righteousness, ugly. Ugly before God. What we see is the very antithesis. We see humility. We see meekness. We see brokenness a picture of jesus why such meagerness why such lowliness oh my friends so that everyone so that all may come there's no barriers with god that's why from the top to the bottom when jesus died it is finished Teliosa. it is finished the rail the veil tore from top to bottom there's a reason you can't get to the top only who can get those god supernaturally tore the top and when that veil was torn atop what from top to bottom what is god saying what is god that everyone can enter in not just a specific chosen few Everyone can, a shepherd can come in, a pauper can come in, a banker can come in, and every soul can come in from a pauper to a peasant, from those in the doghouse and those in the penthouse can come in. God is declaring no more barriers. Everyone now has access into my kingdom. Hallelujah. That's why, from the least to the greatest, because the gospel transcends culture, race, philosophy. 2 Corinthians 5.10, he who was rich became poor. Became poor. Became poor. This is God. Poor. Born in a manger took upon the form of a servant. This is God himself so that you and I can enter. My God, so that no one can take the glory because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Crimson stain. at all the greatest gift that God has ever given to humanity for God so loved the world that he gave his only whosoever oh my friends it's not the gift under the tree that's so great that many of us revel and go crazy for the gifts that are under the tree I want the gift but it's the gift that was nailed to the tree that's the greatest gift that man has ever seen. And that gift keeps going on. No power can overcome him. No force can conquer him. 
No voice can still him. No darkness can hide him. Now, yeah, the centuries have not eroded him. Time has not wearied him. Circumstances have not changed him. He remains still the Savior, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting One, the Coming King. And after 2,000 years of conquering emperors, majestic monarchs, religious leaders, and brilliant statesmen, the answer is still, there is none like unto him. There are none like unto him. Yes, in the city of David, a savior, a child. Oh, friends, I wish I can describe him today. I wish I can give some kind of description of who he is. But no human word, every word that comes from any human tongue pales to describe the awesomeness of this savior that was born. How can I explain who he is, a mere man. But I know, I know the Bible can. I, I, know, I know that the Bible... Do, do you want to know, as I close, who Jesus is? Do you want to know? Is there somebody on Facebook that wants to know who Jesus is? Is there somebody on YouTube that's been searching and asking who? Fasten your seatbelts and you better hold on to your hats because there's a mighty wind about the table. Because in Genesis, Jesus was the ram that was caught in the thicket. Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. Numbers, he is the cloud by day and the fire pillar by night. Deuteronomy, the city of our refuge. And Joshua, the scarlet red thread that flows from the sea. Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. Nehemiah, he is the one who rebuilds the walls. In Psalm, he is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Proverbs, he is a mighty strong tower, and the righteous runneth unto it and are safe. In the Song of Solomon, he is the altogether lovely one, the beautiful. In Isaiah, he is the lamb that went to the slaughter. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. In Daniel chapter for 3, he is the fourth man, the fourth man in in the midst of the fire. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband, never leaves his bride. In, in Joel, he is the one who restores the years that the locusts have eaten. In Amos, in Amos, in Amos, he is my burden bearer, my burden bearer. Cast all your burdens upon him, for he careth for you. In Jonah, he's the great missionary going to Nineveh, and Jesus going into all the world to preach the gospel. He is my great missionary, the one who saves me. My Habakkuk, the watchman that is uh, ever praying for revival. Don't ever stop praying for revival. Revival, revival. Zechariah, Zechariah, he's the one riding upon the donkey, bringing salvation to this world. In Malachi, listen to me, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. In Matthew, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the Messiah of the world. In Mark, he is the great miracle worker. In Luke, he is the God who reached 
reached man and God. He is the Theoanthropos, the God-man living among us. In John, in John, he is the I am. I am the door. I am the vine. I am the light. I am the bread. I am the living water. If any man thirsts, let him come and drink of these waters and I will give you water that you will never thirst again. My God, in Acts, in Acts, there is no other name given among men where they can be saved but through the name of Jesus. In Acts, in Him we live and move and have our being. Oh, my friends, in Romans, in Romans, He's the one who justifies me by faith. He is my justifier. In Corinthians, He blesses me with all spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In Galatians, He is the one who redeems me from the curse of the law in Philippines he is the God who supplies all my needs in Colossians he's the fullness of the Godhead bodily he is the fullness every Jehovah witness did you hear me he's the fullness of the Godhead every Muslim out there did you hear me he's the fullness of the Godhead yes he is in Thessalonians chapter 4 he's the one who's coming for the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God shall sound and the dead in Christ shall live and we which are remain shall be caught up together in the air my God in first Timothy he's the mediator between God did you hear me out there he's the mediator every Catholic stop praying to Saint Joseph stop praying to Saint Anthony there's only one mediator in Titus he is our blessed hope the one we're praying to Who's coming again in Hebrews is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. In James, he is the Lord who heals the sick. Oh, Second Peter, he's our chief shepherd. In Jude, he is the Lord coming with 10,000 of angels. In Revelation. Oh! In Revelation 19, he's coming back with all of his saints, the church coming back to destroy the works of the devil once and for all. And the battle of Armageddon, which I saw when I was in Israel. And one day we will reign with him a thousand years and then we will be with him forever and ever and ever. Oh, my friends, my friends, Jesus said, when you see these signs coming to pass, and they're all they're coming to pass today in our midst. Look up! Look up! Look up! When you see these signs, look up for your redemption. Oh, my friends, when the water breaks, the baby's about to come. When the water breaks, the baby's about to come. When the water breaks, the baby is about to come well friends the water's broken he's about to come something's about to take place something are you ready are you ready yeah but it's not a baby he's not coming as a baby that's all said and done he's coming back as the lion in the tribe of Judah he's coming back with a great roar the roar of Judah he's coming back the roar and every demonic stronghold is coming down every chain will be broken my God he reigns supreme he's coming back let the redeemed say so I got something to shout about something to get excited about he's coming again that's my blessed hope that's the one that was born in Bethlehem he's the one born in a cave coming back as a king 
as a king. Oh, and one day, every knee will bow. One day, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Yes, Krishna, you're going to bow. That's right, Buddha, you're going to bow. That's right, Mr. Guru, you're going to bow. That's right, Mohammed, oh, you especially are going to bow. That's right, that's right. Every atheist is going to bow. Every cultic is going to bow. Every secular humanist is going to bow. Every arrogant is going to bow. Every demon is going to bow. Every stronghold is going to bow at the knee and bow to the greatest one. To bow at the prophecy that the angel said, Behold, in the city of David, a Savior! is born a savior a savior and we're going to bow before him and worship him forever can we stand please oh come let us adore. Oh, come, let us adore.